Welcome back, everybody. I'd like to thank Corinne for sponsoring today's class. The Ilinishmas Al Khanon Leib Ben Zeev Dav. The father. David. David, yes. Zeev David. That he is the Shabbat should have an aliyah, the merit of our learning, and all of the good things that you're doing. We are up to chapter 49. 49 out of 53 of the Tanya. Quite exciting as we're concluding, we're reaching the, the culmination, the completion of this whole first section of the Tanya. And over the last little while, we've been focusing on different avenues via which we can develop a love and a fear for Hashem. There's no quick trick. There's no simple formula. It's a journey. It's the journey of the Tanya. It's a long, short way so that we are able to to make it very near to us, to make it very accessible for us, to be able to serve Hashem with our mouth, with our heart to do it. To be fully involved, to be able to connect with Hashem, with all of our being, and to have the inspiration to do so. Recently we've been talking about how do we Love Hashem. And the last discussion we had over chapters 46 and 47 was that we only need to think about what Hashem has done for us. If we think about how much Hashem has done for us, then that will evoke within us a reciprocal love, like the face of water looks back to that face in the water. It will only, it will evoke within us a reciprocal love that we also do a lot for Hashem. And that's really been the general theme since chapter 46. In chapter 46, we gave the analogy of a uh, great king that leaves his uh, palace. Mazel tov. Thank you. Welcome. Of a great king that leaves his palace in order to uh, um, go down to the dumps. To be able to pick up this person that has fallen so low and to not only help him, but to bring that person back with him to the palace. And we described how when Hashem took us out of Egypt, we were not in good shape. And Hashem in His loving kindness reached out and came down to Egypt and took us out. Not only did he take us out of the dump, but he brought us close to him that we could have a very personal and relation, a personal and meaningful relationship with God himself. That was what we said in chapter 46. Except the only shortfall of that explanation is that it's been a couple of thousand years since God took us out of Egypt. And in chapter 47, we describe how that, that didn't just happen once historically on a national level, but rather every single day we have the opportunity to uh, break out of the uh, distractions and restrictions that our material lives only naturally place upon us. We need to eat, we need to drink, we need to look after ourselves, we need to get places that as we discussed two weeks ago, all of those things that are there to help us can often take us over. 
We could get consumed by our food and our cars and all of the materialism. It's only natural. That's what happens to us as humans. But how lucky we are that Hashem in His loving kindness reaches out to us and He gives us on a daily, on a daily basis an opportunity to experience Exodus, to break out of all of those limitations, to be able to come close to Hashem. And then we came to chapter 48. Kabbalah 101. And we spoke about three big words in Kabbalah. And they are Tzimtzum, Soivev Kol Albin, and Babali Kol Albin. What? Tzimtzum. 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 T-S. T-S-I-M-T-S-U-M. And we have Soivev Kol Albin, that's S-O-V-E-V. Soivev Kol Albin. V-E-V. V-E-V. Soivev. V-E-V. And Mamale Kol Albin. Mamale. M-E-M-A-L-E-I. Mamale Kol Albin. Mamale. We've got Simpson, Soivev, and Mamale. Who can tell me what they are? Not <laughs> you went your last week. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. And then Babale. One of them was pulling in, and one of them was the around and compass. Very good. Very good. I don't know what you said. Okay, you went your last week, but we'll pull you in a little bit. So, this is the story. The story is that God is infinite. And any way that we could try to describe him only falls short of his true greatness. We spoke a bit about that last week. What it means that God is infinite. And we realized that had God created us just out of his infinity, with his infinite powers, with his infinite light, we wouldn't operate as finite beings. We'd be here, but we would be ourselves uh, totally overwhelmed by God's infinite life. We wouldn't take on our very individualized descriptions and abilities. In order for Hashem to make room for us finite beings to exist as finite beings, something drastic needed to happen. And that is... Simtum. Simtum was a process where Hashem removed, at least on an apparent level, himself. He removed himself on an apparent level, creating an empty space that's where he is invisible. And then there was an absolute void. And then he allowed a little bit of godly light to shine in, just a, a glimmer, a sliver of light with which he created a finite world. And that little light that shone through the vacancy, the apparent vacancy, is called Mabale Kol Albin, Hashem filling the world. By allowing only a glimmer of himself to be felt and seen, it left space for us to exist as finite beings.
it goes without saying that this little glimmer of his light, this mamale called Almin, the way he fills the world, is nothing relative to his infinite light. Meaning, the way that we engage with Hashem in the material world, the way that we see Him in this physical world, tells us almost nothing about Hashem's greatness. And there we, here we come to the third description, which was called Soveb Kalamud, which is where Hashem is beyond. He encompasses. And we explain via an analogy of somebody imagining something. If you were to sit here and you were to picture in your mind, we described last week, this grand building or this grand party and you imagined it from the music to the balloons to every last detail, you have the whole, you have it all, but it's just staying in your mind until it's actually done. There's the... There's the party and there's your mind and they're two separate entities. There's what's going on in your mind and there's the party that's happening. But in your mind, you're picturing the entire party down to the last little detail or the entire building to the last little detail. So you have it, but you don't have it. And then we pointed out that for us human beings, that's the way it is. Whatever we have in our minds just stays in our minds. We're at most able to grasp an image, a form, a, con- a concept of the idea, of the party, of the building. But the actual building, the actual party will take place elsewhere, whether we're there or we're not there. By Hashem, by Hashem, him and his mind is one, and his mind and that which he has in his mind is one, which means that when Hashem thinks of an idea, that is the idea. That's what actually makes it be. When Hashem thinks table, then there's a table. Hashem said, let there be light, and there was light. Oh. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And the speaking refers to the symptom where he had to, just like when you've got so much going on in your mind, and you've got to limit it down to just a few words. That's all that you could share. And it says so little about how you're feeling inside of your heart. Hashem and his infinite light is so awesome. But... He limited himself down to a few words, let there be light. And with those words, let there be light, the world came into being. However, when you're at the party, do you see the the party planner? When you're in a building, do you see the architect? No, you don't. You see what they produced, but... You could have thought that there was no party planner. You could, have, you could have known nothing of it. So the party planner or the architect had everything in his mind. But as far as the creation that was produced, it tells you nothing of him. Again, and here we come to a distinction. By the party planner and the architect, just by him having those drawings or those plans, that doesn't make it happen. You'll need a separate executive team to bring it to fruition. By Hashem, just by Hashem having it in his mind, that can make it be. But that which is made into being tells us nothing about the mastermind behind the plan. 
right? People just don't, I think you say, people just don't appreciate. They have no idea what went into this. They can't. What do you expect of them? How would they know? Unless you tell them. Where are we going with this? This is Hashem's infinite light that remains beyond this world. It's a light that really is infused within this world. When we speak about it being beyond this world, it's really everywhere. Like that party planner and architect that was involved in every last detail of the building of the party. They were fully involved. They were there. But from the recipient's perspective, they know nothing of them. Similarly, Hashem's, even his infinite light, from which all, all energy comes, is actually here. It's in the room. It's with us. But we know nothing of it. As we said, because without Tzimtzum, we would be overwhelmed by that light. And we wouldn't be able to, to, to exist as finite individuals. So Renee, this is uh, filling you in a little bit about our, our Kabbalah class we had last week. And the really humbling result of this discussion is twofold. And this brings us to chapter 49. In chapter 46, we described how the greater the king is that reaches down to the man in the dumps, the more love, the more reciprocal love that man will have for the king. The, 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 both because it's such a great person and how privileged he is that this great, great king has reached out to this person in such a dire situation. And also, it tells us not just where this kindness comes from, but the extent of the king's kindness. If the king is great, if he's greater, then it means that it required more going down on the king's part to reach this person in the dumps, right? If it's just a neighbor that sees the guy that needs help and he just looks out the window and he comes downstairs and he helps him out, that's beautiful. It's very nice. It's a loving neighbor. But when you have a king that travels from his palace down to the dumps, that's a much greater descent. It's a much greater journey. So, so the king, when he helps out that simpleton, the, the simpleton's appreciation of the king is twofold. Firstly, the greater the king, the more touched he is by the king's kindness because the king is so great. And secondly, he's more touched by the king's kindness because it tells him how far down the king was willing to bring himself in order to help him out. But he might not know that. Correct. It's, it's all, it's very common for the uh, recipient to not think about it. But when he does think about it, then he's got to want to meet the king. He's going to want to send him a thank you. He's going to say, what can I do for him? After everything is done for me, he's going to be, he, the more he thinks about the love that the king has shown him, the more of a love he'll feel in return to the king. I think this also answers the, the questions of frustrations that often people have that like, you know, you know, after everything I've done for that person, you know, why don't they appreciate me or why don't they, you know, care for me? You know, sometimes we think that our kids believe in the big bang theory. They think everything just banged into being. They don't realize that it took day and night and years of loving, nurture and investment and care in order to allow the kids to be who they are, that they kind of just seem to be oblivious to it, and obviously kids and, and people. But what, why is this happening? It's because the giver has invested a lot of himself in the receiver. The question is, 
how much has the receiver hmm. thought about that investment? How cognizant are they? So it's not that they reject it or they don't appreciate it. It's that they simply don't take the time to think about it. And the more the recipient will think about the extent of the giver, the more the recipient will no doubt feel an appreciation and a love for the parent, for the giver. Right? Sometimes when you finally have your own children, you realize this, you start realizing how much you need to thank your parents for what they did for you. <laughs> so this is the story of, here we go. This is the story. This is where Kabbalah actually brings us to love Hashem. Kabbalah is wonderful. Many people are into Kabbalah. But the purpose of Tanya is not to study Kabbalah. The purpose of Tanya is to empower and inspire and educate us to be able to achieve what we need to achieve. achieve. To give us the enthusiasm, the power and the motivation to, to transform our lives and the people around us and their lives for the better. So, but we need to have the wherewithal. We need to have the motivation. We need to be empowered. Aren't we all looking for empowerment? I guess that's probably why you're here on this Monday morning. Because please God, you could walk out feeling that you have a mission. We're empowered. The message of chapter 49 of the Tanya is for us to think about what Hashem has done for us on a Kabbalistic level. What does that mean? Earlier I spoke about Simpson. I spoke about how Hashem had to contract himself, squash himself, make himself small in order to make room for us. And you may think that there was one Simpson, but really Kabbalah tells us that there were thousands of Simpson. <laughs> many, many Simpson. It's a it was a Many, many, I was going to say a gradual process, but symptom is nothing gradual. It's, it's very uh, radical. It's, it's, uh, when you come, what you come out of on the other side of the symptom is not, like, nothing like what went in on the, on the first side because you need to have this, this um, uh, leap of change from infinite to finite. And in that change from infinite to finite, there are multiple symptoms because even the finite product that comes out on the other side of symptom remains infinite relative to a lower product, to a lower level. But that's but that's from his perspective. But that's like the party planner that you know nothing of him. That's Saifei. That's Hashem as these infinite light remains everywhere, but remains above our consciousness. It's beyond us. It's beyond our perception. So he is here, he, but 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 that that Hashem makes invisible. And in the process of making himself invisible and creating this somewhat vacant space in order to us to exist as finite entities, it wasn't just one symptom, it's multiple symptoms. How many worlds are there? Infinite. Many, many worlds. Right. Worlds. How many worlds are there? There's many, many worlds. So, is the symptom still happening? Or is it happening? Hashem is not limited. Uh, Debbie's asked, is the symptom still happening? Hashem is not limited to time and space. So there's no before and after. So therefore, yes, it is. It's all now. It's all happening. And before Tzimtzum and after Tzimtzum both exist at the same time. Yeah. When you speak about before and after in Kabbalah, we don't speak on the clock. We speak um, um, as, a, a, as reality exists on a higher platform and on a lower platform. Oh, wow. Higher and lower, not being in place, because there's no place, not being in time, but being in level. Meaning 
before higher is as reality exists beyond the symptom, meaning reality that exists that hasn't been affected by symptom. And then after represents reality as it is being created through the process of symptom. There's four, there's thousands of worlds, but Kabbalah describes four general groups of worlds. And I'm not, you don't need to write this down, I'm not going to test you on it, because the Tanya doesn't elaborate on it over here. He just mentioned, it's mentioned a lot to the Tanya, but it's discussed more in other sections. They're called Atsilus, Maria, Yetzirah, and Asiyo, and in abbreviation, Abiyah. These are four worlds, each world having created entities that are on a lower level than the world high above it. No, I can't, not now. It's for another. That, that would be if we were doing a full Kabbalah series. But the point that I want to make is that between every world was another huge symptom. So the world of Atsilis is... Are they different levels? Yes. Each, one, each world is lower than the world that precedes it. Atsilis is a world. It's already a world, but it's still a world that's filled with just godliness. Berea is a world where there's already angels and uh, souls that uh, connect with Hashem through the avenues of intellect. And so they're limited now. They're now operating through the channels of intellect. But they're still considered unlimited relative to the creations of the lower worlds, of, Yet- uh, of Yetzirah and Asiya. And so from each world to the world below it, Hashem went through three major symptoms. Meaning, Hashem squashed himself. Then he squashed himself some more. Then he squashed himself some more. There's three major symptoms, so many squeezings, but there's three general squeezings. And what does that all do for us? It inspires us to be ready to squash ourselves to come close to Hashem. When we think about how Hashem gives up of Himself, meaning He puts aside His greatness in order to come down to come down to this world, to create this world, and to give us space, me and you. And then he chooses us. And the Tanya here famously says, here in chapter 49, God didn't just choose our souls, he chose our bodies. Mm. Even though our bodies look like the rest of humanity, uh, uh, the body of a Jew is holy, which requires a whole class in its own right. And, and, and what, that, what, what the significance of that is, is that... He invests not just in our spiritual well-being. He invests in us as people, empowering us to be able to bring our material and bodily uh, drives closer to Him. So again, Hashem steps out of His palace and he goes on, he, he takes these three giant steps of giving up of himself, these three big tzimtzumim, in order to allow us to be, and to empower us to have a unique role in this world, which is to be able to raise ourselves closer to Hashem, to enter into his palace, and then to bring that energy, the godly energy, into the world around us. This is what Hashem has done for us. And when we think about that, then that will empower us to uh, forego the comforts. And even if it's not just the luxuries, but I would say the 
human comfort zones and spaces of our lives in order to be able to come closer to Hashem. And the Tanya divides it into three general categories of what we should be ready to uh, um, sacrifice in order to get closer to Hashem. And again, we're getting closer to Hashem, but the objective is not just for us to rise out and above. The objective is once we are able to break out of our Egypts, to then take that energy that we're experiencing and bring it back into the world around us. If we want to be an inspiration to the people around us, then that requires for us to raise above those challenges, the challenges that we're dealing with, and then have the energy, the inspiration, the godliness to be able to inspire others to make their worlds, their lives, a better world and a better life. What are the three areas that we need to sacrifice? The first is, let me explain. Don't start me just yet. The first is family. I'll explain what that means in a moment. The second is life, or I would even say health. Health. Health, yeah. So it's getting worse by the second. And the third doesn't sound as, uh, as shocking. The third is uh, money. <coughs> so, you know, sacrifice. Yeah, so why would you want to sacrifice family? There's nothing more important than family. Health, nothing more important than health. We know we break Shabbos to save a life. Money, okay, I can understand. But even that, you've got to live. You've got to be able to live. If you could bear with me for a moment, there is a, seems to be a contradiction in the Talmud. In one place of the Talmud, the Talmud says that a person is not allowed to do anything before prayer in the morning. The first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is you daven. And included in that is going to say hi to somebody. And when you say going to say hi to somebody, we don't mean saying hi to somebody on the street, the Gemara clarifies. It means going on a trip in order to meet up with somebody. Meaning the, the Talmud forbids a person from uh, um, going out for coffee before you daven. Why? Because the first thing you do in the morning is to acknowledge God before you take care of whatever other endeavors that you have. That's one passage of the Talmud. There's another passage of the Talmud. That one of the great sages, before he prayed, would go out to the streets and seek a poor man. He would give him food and then he would pray. And there's a famous story of one of the Chabad Rebbe's of how he met somebody on the street on the way to Shul. And he was going to the market and he asked him for a loan. And, and, and the Rebbe said, sure, as soon as I finish davening, I'm going to come and help you out. And as he was sitting in Shul, he's like, what's wrong with me? Here the man, he needs Parnassa. And he left Shul and left the davening. He wasn't going to make the man wait till he finished davening. And he went back out to the market and he gave him, gave him the loan and only then he was able to daven. So it seemed to be contradictory because the one statement says that you're not allowed to do anything before prayer. And the other statement says that the, only way, the best way for your prayers to be accepted in heaven is that you go out to the streets. So should you go out to the streets or should you not go out to the streets? I think the answer is whose interests you have in mind. Okay. If you're going out for coffee because you need to make some connections so that you can succeed in business, so then it's your own interests in mind. 
if you're going out for coffee because somebody else's spirit needs to be raised and you see here's an opportunity to help them, then his interests are in mind. And I think that's the determining factor. Is this something that is a self-indulging or self-consuming moment? Or is this a moment of selflessness? Is it selfishness or selflessness? We spoke a lot about this earlier in the Tanya. And so the very same act can seem the same, but it's extremely different dependent on what your motivation is. And I think over here the same when we talk about sacrificing family. Um, as that most people, most healthy people, only naturally want to look after themselves and after their families. It's very important. It's not just important, it's a human condition. It's unhealthy people care for each other. You care for your children, you care for your siblings, you care for your parents. That's just the way God created us. We look after each other. So when you talk about sacrificing family, I think what it means over here is maybe the selfishness of the selfishness or the indulgence of it as opposed to the selflessness of it. Meaning that... If you want to just spend time with your family because you just like them and you want to spend time with them. If you want to spend time with your spouse because you're just having a good time together and then it's time to daven. Or to do any mitzvah for that matter. Right? You're out on your... Uh, on your uh, you're out, you went on vacation, you went on a holiday together and then suddenly you get a call, somebody needs help. Are you able to help them out? But you've just gone, you've just taken your... your you've just gone away with your, with your husband, with your wife, you, you're spending time together, it's a very important time. So you need to ask yourself at that point, is this me spending time with my spouse right now essential for their needs because I need to care for them? Or is it because I'm having a good time? Which is also important. We're by no means saying that family is not important and that you shouldn't appreciate and enjoy family. But if it's but if somebody else needs help right now and you're just really having a good time, then maybe sacrifice on that comfort of your family time in order to help somebody else out. So this doesn't mean that we don't need to care for each other. Obviously, family comes first. Even in a tzedakah capacity, our first requirement of tzedakah is the family before anybody else. But what it does mean is that a challenge of life is to break out of the comfort zone of being maybe in good com company of family in order to do what needs to be done. Sometimes it could be the opposite. Sometimes it could be not going to shul or not doing that because right now my obligation is to look after my spouse. So therefore, although this person needs help, unfortunately, no, I can't help you, right? It's a basic thing. It happens to every one of us every day. You finally get home, or hopefully you people are more righteous than me, but you get home and you finally have a conversation with your spouse and then the phone rings. Oh, how can I help you? What do you mean, how could you help you? You're just trying to, your spouse needs. So obviously there's an important evaluation you need to weigh up. Who, you, who do you need to care for right now? Who, who do you need to look after? But the, part of, the deep part of that evaluation is, is it out of selfishness or is it out of selflessness? Is this a moment where I'm enjoying myself and we're all just having a good party together? In which case... You need to break out of that comfort zone of family and sacrifice on that family time in order to reach somebody else. Or is it a moment where you really right now need to be caring for your family?
I mean, just to take a, maybe today already a classic scenario that many people speak about is where you have these uh, Chabad young couples that travel off to the other end of the world and they're uh, on their own. They leave their parents, their family in order to help out some community. And you ask them, like, what about family? You know, isn't the most important thing family? Why are you not like, just staying together with your family? And the answer is no, it's not. Family is important and I need to care for them. But if it's the comfort of being able to get my mother's chicken soup or whatever it is, or spend Shabbos meals together, I'm ready to sacrifice for that in order to go out there and help somebody that needs help. And the same when it comes to health. Yes, there's a mitzvah to break Shabbos in order to save a life. But sometimes there are mitzvahs where a person should rather die than, than violate the mitzvah. There's the three big sins of bowing down to an idol and adultery and murder. A person should rather let themselves be killed than be involved in any of those. But guess what? It's not only those three. It's any mitzvah at a moment of, of challenge, which means in communist Russia, people would literally risk their lives for the smallest of mitzvahs just because here it was, it became unprincipled. It was now to stick to my Yiddishkeit. It wasn't about when somebody is um, sick and they need to go to the hospital on Shabbos. That's not, it's not undermining their Yiddishkeit. That's what Torah expects of them. But if somebody was told that, you know, either you break Shabbos or I'll, I'll, I'll hurt you, then they have an opportunity to, to say, no, I'm not doing it. Even for Shabbos, for any mitzvah. For kosher, whatever the mitzvah may be, if a person's Yiddish guide is being challenged, then we need to be ready, ready to even sacrifice our lives in order to hold on to that Yiddish guide. And throughout the generations, we have many sages and rabbis that literally would, uh, who died on Kiddush Hashem, giving up their lives for Hashem. Obviously, every one of these points is a whole shit in their own right. And we really we need to get the primary takeaway point of chapter 49. And thirdly, money. That we need to be willing to give of our money for Hashem. And when I was preparing this, uh, one story came to mind, and then I read another beautiful story. The first story that came to mind was once three Hasidim, they were arguing. Each Hasid was a Hasid of a different Rebbe, from a different Hasidic community. And they were each arguing which one of their Rebbe's was really a greater Rabbi. Okay? Sounds like kids arguing, right? Over which daddy is bigger. But they were arguing. So the one chassid said, you know, my Rebbe is so great that these were the circumstances and there seemed no way out and the miracle that the Rebbe performed and he saved us and he, and, and he resolved the situation, unbelievable. And the second chassid says, I'll tell you, I'm going to take it to another level of the greatness of my Rebbe. It could be the details of the story are there. I, just, I didn't read the story now, so I don't know the details. But what I do know is that the third chassid he said, I'm going to tell you the greatness of my Rebbe. He told me to invest all of my, uh, I think he had a wood forest. He told me to invest all of my uh, money, all of my resources in a particular business venture. And I invested all my money in the venture and I lost everything. Yeah, and then what happened? Tell us a story. What's the miracle? The miracle is that I remained a chassid. I remained a chassid. <laughs> It's a very deep story because what he was illustrating was that his Hasid Rebbe relationship was not limited to uh, miracles that were performed. It was one that was just deeper than that. Meaning, it's, yes, I lost all my money, 
But I'm proud that I listened to my Rebbe. I, I, I'm so happy that I have that relationship because my relationship with my Rebbe is much more deeper, is deeper and more meaningful than the body that I lost. Here's another story. It's a true story. There was a particular chassid. And his name was Rebbe Yankel. Actually, Rebbe Avram Mayar. It's a particular chassid. Avram Mayar. He was also uh, in business. And he... Uh, Invited a friend of his by the name of Rabbi Yaakov, I have his last name, if I find it in a moment, I'll tell you, to join him on this particular business venture. Why? Because Rabbi Yaakov was, had a good head, so he was able to see straight through things, and he wanted to have him as a business partner. Anyhow, they went into the deal, and thank Baruch Hashem, the deal was very successful, and they made a few thousand rubles, and they split it. That was the deal. I guess it was a partner that was a very big partner of here, and they took the thousand a few thousand rubles and they divided it between the two of them. A few days later, it's Erev Shabbos, and Rav Yankel knocks on Rav Avram Bayar's door and he asks him if he could lend him some money for Shabbos. Yeah, he wants to buy food for Shabbos. Can he lend him a few rubles? So Avram Bayar turns to him and he says, what do you mean? We just cracked a deal this week. <laughs> I didn't expect that. What happened to the thousands of rubles that he made that, that we made? I made and you made. He said that there were three people of organizations that needed help. There were two teachers in the school that just hadn't been paid and it put the, the, the school at risk. They hadn't been paid. They needed Parnassa. The school wasn't able to afford to give them a paycheck. I guess maybe they were accepting kids that couldn't afford to pay, to pay uh, tuition. So if I finally got the few thousand rubles, I immediately directed it so that these teachers could be paid. And there was a mikvah that was being built and, and the, the construction had been frozen. They needed funds. So I gave the funds. So that's the Baruch Hashem. I put my few thousand rubles to good, to good use. Can you borrow me a few rubles so I could buy food for Shabbos? Which is obviously another level. Um, yes, you're not supposed to. There's a concept of not giving more than a first and, and, and looking after yourself. And when you, when you, if, you, if you're right now considering giving your few thousand rubles then you can consult your rabbi or whoever it is, mentor to see how to do it correctly. That's not the point. The point of the story was that this man gave of his money for Hashem. He, he was just willing to give it. He saw three people that needed help and he just helped them out because that's it. That's, that, 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 that's what he was willing to do. And I conclude with talking about none other than the Shema perhaps the most powerful or most important prayer in Judaism. It starts with the words, You should love Hashem your God. You should love. Can you command somebody to love? I'm asking you. How could you command love? If you're commanding it, then it's not love. What do you say, Helen? You've got to earn it. You've got to earn it. You can't command love. 
But God commands us to love. It's the first word of the, of the paragraph after the Shema. The Ahafta, and you shall love. Look at the Siddur. That's what it says. This isn't my interpretation. Hasidus explains that we can be commanded to love because we can be commanded to think about the things that will bring us to love. It's not just saying, love now. It's saying, you should love. And you know what it's like? It's like telling parents, that their children, that they should love their parents. How could you command them? Either I like them right now, I don't know. Start to appreciate what your parents have done for you so that you will actually begin to feel that love. And that is why the sages instituted two blessings before the Shema. There's two long blessings that come right before the Shema. And for generations, huge, great sages, the Rashman, many have questioned, what is the connection between these two paragraphs of the Shema? Came Tanya that we're learning right now, chapter 49, and said it makes perfect sense. It's, 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 it's obvious. The first paragraph after the Shema speaks about Hashem's greatness, meaning speaks about how he's above and beyond. It tells us about the greatness of the king, how all the angels are saying, Kadosh, 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 Hashem, you're, you're out of this world, you're beyond us, we can't comprehend you, you're just too great. That's the first paragraph. The second paragraph says, nonetheless, how Hashem, how Hashem came down into the dump and He cares for us and He loves for us and He chooses us and He raises us. That's the criteria that you shall love. All we need to do is to think about how Hashem, how much Hashem has squashed Himself and given up on His greatness in order to make space for us and to care us and empower us to achieve. When and then when we think about what Hashem has done for us, then only naturally we've got to be ready to that we will love Hashem with all your heart, your soul, and your being, which our sages say, to love Him. refers to your heart, meaning your family, your wife and children, to be willing to sacrifice on the comforts, as I described earlier. Not the obligations, of the comforts of family for Hashem. Your soul, even if somebody wants to kill you, which is on your physical health, on your well-being, to be willing to sacrifice that for Hashem. Rashi tells us is your body. To be willing to give your body for Hashem. How do we come to that we will be able to forgo all of our comfort zones out of our love for Hashem? So that we could raise above our um, space and limitations to come close to Hashem and bring Hashem back into this world through the two blessings that come before the Shema by thinking about what Hashem has done for us. And so this is the take home of chapter 49. The, chapter, the take home of chapter 49 is that we need to appreciate. How there's no big bang. Sorry, we need to appreciate. It's, there's no big bang. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all the scientists in the room. This world didn't big bang into being. 
Hashem, it took tremendous investment for Hashem to create this world. It took three major tzimtzumim. By now you know what it means. Hashem went through these for, for God of His greatness three times again and again in order to make space for us. I've got to realize that. This life, the world around us isn't just here, just by chance. Hashem really creates this entire world. Just why? For us. Because He believes in us and He wants to empower us. And when we think about how much Hashem has given of His greatness, given up on His greatness, His humility to care for us, then we will be empowered and inspired to squeeze ourselves through all of our material distractions that bog us down so that we could, re- we could raise above our challenges and distractions. Getting in touch with Hashem and then sharing that love with all the world around us. So that we can, in the analogy of the wording of the Tanya at the end of 49, that we could ha- kiss Hashem. We kiss Hashem when we spend a moment learning His Torah. And we hug Him through His mitzvahs. And then to bring that love into the world around us. L'chaim.